The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Um, well, we continue in our, our worship as we turn now to God's Word. We, we sing to the Lord, we thank Him. Uh, then we, we transition to a time where we hear from Him, we speak to Him. And that's exactly what we believe is happening um, as we open up God's Word and the words are read and taught. We believe we're actually hearing from God, uh, not, from, not from me in the sense that that you're hearing from me as hearing from God, but as we read God's word, we believe that these words are inspired by God, that they are, these are his words. To, to deny them is to deny God, but to believe them and to rest in them is to believe and rest in God. And so with that, with that acknowledgement, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3 um, and hear God's word, starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for continuing with us in Ephesians. If you're new with us, we've been working through Ephesians in the new year, and we see that Paul's attempt to remind the church of the good news of the gospel, what it is that God has done for us, and then how that relates to our entire life. You know, some time ago, I was approached by a man talking to a stranger who was going on and on about his um, the benefits of the Christian life and the benefits of being a Christian and the good contributions of, of Jesus Christ to our society. He claimed to be a Christian and even shared in that conversation some, some great things that he recently did in the church as an act of service and local, local things that he did in the community to be a blessing to others. And yet there was something that seemed a little bit off in my mind. And so I pressed him a little further and I asked him a simple question. I said, do you love Jesus? And he, the look on his face as he took a few steps back, it was as if I asked him um, if he was my dad or something like that. He's like, what are you talking about? He took a deep st a step back and said, well, I wouldn't describe it that way, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, I believe what the Bible says, and I believe what, uh, everything that's in there, and I try to do what it says, but, but I, don't, I don't understand what it has to do with actually loving Jesus. We ended up in a good conversation talking about what Jesus calls us to in a personal relationship with him. And so some months later, I actually decided to do this again with another stranger. Uh, I should probably tell you not only do I have the spiritual gift of embarrassment, but also of making people feel incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and so I did this again, a total stranger, and she was going on and on about her activities in the church and her, all the things that her church was doing that weekend, and she seemed rather proud of all that she was, was doing. And so I asked her, I said, I said, that's awesome. Let me ask you one question, if you don't mind. Do you love Jesus? And she got to put her head down a little bit and got soft in her voice, and she said, yes, I do, and he loves me. 
You know, two different people, two people saying almost virtually the same thing about what's going on in their life and the things that they did that weekend, and yet two very different responses. Two people claiming to be a Christian and two very different experiences. Why, why do I share this? Why is this important? Well, the claims of Christianity are so powerful, so radical, that it claims that the answer to all of our problems, all of our struggles, the cure to all of our worries, the hope for all of our fears comes down to personally experiencing in the deepest part of our being the dimensions of Jesus' love for us. That the relationship between a person and Christ who claims to be a Christian is one of, of deep love for one another. It's possible to know all the answers. It is possible to teach the Bible, to be raised in the church, to rehearse the facts over and over again, to be able to give the perfect answer to every question that is asked and never have the love of God penetrate to the deepest parts of our heart. And at this moment in the letter that Paul is writing to this church, he says, I, I know you're struggling. I know that it's difficult what you're going through right now. And so Paul says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for you. And he says, let's, let's pray. And he says, I, I bow my knees to the Father. I'm going to pray. Let's just take a knee. And then he begins praying. And that's what most of this passage is, is Paul's very specific prayer for them in their great time of need. But do you notice that he doesn't pray for a single thing going on in their lives? He doesn't pray for anything specific for them. These people are crushed by discouragement. They're, they're crushed by their external uh, circumstances in their life. And he doesn't mention anything that is going on in their outward circumstances. He doesn't pray for, I don't know, a hedge of protection. He doesn't pray for a rescue from trouble. He doesn't pray that the city would be changed to become a more hospitable environment for them to, to know God. He prays for the love of God to transform their inner being. If, if, if it were you or me, put yourself in their shoes, you're going through a devastating time where you feel marginalized and alienated and threatened by the very city that you live in, you're at your absolute worst and you've hit rock bottom, this prayer, I think, might really discourage you. At least at first, it would discourage you because he makes no reference to anything going on in their lives. And so what Paul is proving through this prayer in this specific prayer, is he pointing us to three things. He's pointing us to the real struggle that we face, that it's not mostly external, but it's rather, it's internal. It's not often what we think. He points us to the real blessing that is ours in the face of all trouble. What blessing does God give to us in the face of our trouble? And he points us to the lasting outcome that is ours through the blessing of Christ. So let's start with how, this com how his comments and his prayer prove that our struggle is not only outward, but mostly inward. The true struggle that we face is a weak inner life. What is our struggle? What is the struggle we face? Well, it's what Paul prays for. He says that we would be strengthened in our inner being. Our real problems are not mostly external, but a failure to apply all that God has told to us, a failure to apply the love of God at a most deep level in our life. Maybe you're thinking, and I know that there might be some, now what on earth is an inner being? What on earth is an inner being? Sounds pretty mystical, sounds pretty new agey. Is that where this church is going? 
uh, in that direction. I don't have an inner being or an outer being. I'm just, I'm just me. What you see is what you get. The Bible says, not so fast. What Paul is proving in his prayer is the absolute priority of the inner life over the outer life for the Christian. But what, is the, what is the inner life? What is the inner being? Well, it's the, it's the opposite of the outer being. Go figure. The outer life. The outer life is everything that we show to the world. It's our spiritual activity for Jesus. It's our outward behavior. It's the way that we act, the way that we talk. It's the way that we behave around others. Your outer life is everything that you present to the world. Everything that people see about you is your outer being. The inner being, then, it's that causal core. It's the causal core of our being that overflows into what we say and to what we do and even how we think. It's what the Bible would refer to as the heart. Not just emotion, not just feeling, but the engine behind everything that comes in our life and comes out into our life. That causal core. You've heard of that an iceberg reality or the iceberg analogy before. I'm sure you have. That 10%, the visible portion of the iceberg that is above the surface of the water, makes up just 10% of this, this colossal ice cube in the ocean. And 90% of its mass is below the surface that we do not see. That 90% is the root of who we are. That inner being is what remains often untouched by Christ. And we can put forward this great outer being, this outer life for everyone to see. And by all, by all metrics that we are able to evaluate, a person looks great. They look happy and healthy and, and spiritual. They look righteous and, and like things are going well, but there's so much we don't see. And what Jesus shows us in Mark chapter 7 is that real spirituality is not about just the outer life, but the inner life. And if we don't get what he says, we'll fail to really realize what it means to be a true Christian. Look at what he says in Mark chapter 7. Hear me, all of you, and understand. This is what Jesus says. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, we look at that whole list of things that Jesus lists and we say, now those are things, if you do those things, then you're not a true Christian. And Jesus isn't saying those things don't matter. He is saying, but there is an inner being that actually motivates all of those things. You aren't just, you, what you see is what you get is not true. The Bible says what we see is a symptom of actually something we don't see. We have an inner being. We all have an inner life, even if it's buried alive, even if we fail to admit it. I don't have time for my feelings. Just tell me what to do and how to live and how to act. Many of you think of Christianity in that way. Just tell me the right way to live and I will live it. We can't help, though. We can't help but have our inner being just kind of spill out and overflow into every relationship. It hits every family member, it hits every coworker, it hits every neighbor when we have interaction with them. Our inner life, whether we like it or not, is going to spill over. You know that. You've seen it. When you've gone to apologize to someone and you say, I don't know what got over me, I'm never like that. You are always like that. You just showed them your true self. I'm just having an off day. 
of keeping my inner being hidden is what you really mean. So Jesus says there's something going on. There's always something going on. And it's your inner self. And that's what I want to touch. Because if that is strong, if that is healthy, then it will overflow into, into righteousness. And so to ignore our inner being is to ignore reality. The point of this passage is this, that what matters ultimately to Jesus in regards to our faithfulness as Christians is a life that is lived out of a deep and surrendered connection to him. That's what Jesus wants. He wants a deep and surrendered connection to him. How is our inner being strengthened? Because this is what Paul prays for. It's through a firsthand experience with Jesus. It's with allowing Christ in relationship with him hit those deep layers of our heart. It's a personal confrontation with the radical grace of God as we labor over what does it mean? What does the grace of God mean to us? How does it apply to my relationships, to my feelings, to my habits and hopes and fears and aspirations? If you believe in Jesus and his work for you and have an inner being that is weak, the result will be a chaotic life. It will be unstable emotions. It will be fear of the future. It will be a paralyzed life because of what people might think of you. It'll be uncertainty of God's faithfulness. You will always worry. You will always feel in doubt. You will always struggle. You will never feel secure. It doesn't matter what activity you do for Jesus in your outer life. If your inner life is weak, then you'll always feel on the verge of spiritual collapse. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you're there right now, and Paul's prayer is for you. It's for me. Real Christianity is, the, is about letting. It is about the ability to live in deep communion with Jesus, where who he is and what he has done for us reaches at a very deep level. And it's this deep communion that will fuel a life of faithfulness in our outer life. And so the Bible knows nothing about, a, uh, about doing things for God that do not flow out of an inner life connected to Him. The Bible knows nothing about being a Christian without being a disciple. Do you know what I mean by that? It knows nothing about doing great things, but our life being disconnected on a heart level from Jesus. In fact, Jesus even confronts these things. He says, you've done great things. You've done all of these things. And in Matthew chapter 7, He says, Jesus says, Depart from me. I never knew you. There will be people who focus so much on the outer life and say, this is what you wanted, isn't it? And Jesus would say, we never had a relationship. I don't know you at that deep level. I have, your, your, your heart has never been transformed. Paul prays specifically for this because he knows that our core issues as Christians come from the inner life. The core issue with most Christians is this. Most people don't spend time with Jesus. Is that true of you? The core problem with Christians, whether they're in struggle or in experiencing great things in our life, is this. We don't spend time with Jesus. We go hurried from one place to another. We, we, our primary interaction with Christianity is mostly in external things. It's in doing nice things. It's in serving. It's in contributing to the good of others. It's through spiritual activity, prayer and Bible study and going to church and and doing service projects, does this describe you? Is most of your interaction with Christianity external? You do activity for Jesus, but you don't have firsthand communion with him in your innermost being. It's possible 
and very common to engage thoughtfully in Christian activity and yet fail to have the love of God transform our hearts. If it's something you just believe and it doesn't affect your emotions, your actions, your ambitions, or your motivation, it hasn't reached your inner being. Have you felt this? Have you felt maybe this comment, I believe in Jesus, why do I struggle so much? Why am I so angry? Why am I so impatient? Why am I so worried all the time? I read my Bible every day and I still lack so much peace. I've been a Christian for 40 years and I feel less mature today than I felt when I first believed. Have you ever made a comment like that? I've been a Christian my whole life. What is wrong with me? It is a symptom of a life disconnected from God. And so Paul says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you that you are strengthened where it matters. Strengthened in communion with Jesus. We're far too focused on doing for God instead of being with God. When was the last time you spent time with Jesus? Like real, thoughtful, undistracted community with Christ for no reason at all? When was the last time you were just with him like a friend? When was it when you felt the love of Christ fill your heart? And the only reason you pursued this interaction was was just that. You didn't ask of anything. There wasn't a crisis you were going through. You, didn't, you weren't doing it because you had to prepare for a Bible study. You weren't doing it because you had to encourage a friend. You didn't do it because you have to do that because Christians are supposed to open their Bible and read. When was the last time you sang a song to him because you wanted to, not because you gathered and you had to? So our problem with the inner life is that it's too weak. Paul prays for strength. But at this point, is it just more just introspective? Is that what the Christian life is all about? Just introspection and just kind of looking inside, more navel-gazing. You heard that term? I love this. I I studied that this week. That's what I spent most of my sermon prep on, is learning the roots of that phrase, navel-gazing. And basically, apparently, the Greeks and the Eastern mystics, in order to get into a state of meditation, would just look at their belly buttons all day. I don't know what good that does for us today, but... They just, they just look at their belly button just to get into a place of just of, of, of silence and introspection. Is that the point? Is that the point of looking at the inner life to just be quiet and to be at peace and to be calm and to be in a state of meditation? Paul's point is, no way. We don't neglect it, but the point is not to just to be a, in a state of solitude. He continues, why do, you, why do we think on the inner life? Why do we go into those places that we don't want anyone to go into and that we often never go into? Why do we go into those dark places that, are, that, that the Bible says is the cause of all of our, our blow-ups and all of our harsh words and all of our, tempta- our sin that, that, that comes out? It's the second Paul, point of what Paul is trying to prove in his prayer, that we would realize the real blessing that we have in Christ. We look inside, we spend time thinking on it, and going deep into the inner life so that we could be strengthened in the inner being and know the love of Christ that has filled us. The blessing that is ours is this, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the point of it all, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, what a strange thing to pray for Christians. Paul is, is writing to Christians. He's writing to the church, these who have, who have already professed faith. So in all respects, he is writing a letter to all a group of people who have prayed to receive Christ in their heart. And now he is saying, I'm going to pray for you that Christ is actually filling in your heart. 
What a weird thing to pray for. It already happened. Why, why would you pray for that very thing? Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts. It means to take up permanent resident in our lives. And I think what Paul is saying here, to pray for a thing that is already there for the Christians is this, is that too many of us think of Jesus like a snowbird and he really needs to be a permanent resident. You follow me? Our lives are not a vacation home for Christ. It's a permanent dwelling place. Paul prays that we would not use Christ or reflect on him in a temporary sense. That we would not use him as a vacationer in our life when we, when we need him to address problems, when we are seeking out uh, a, a new job, or when our child is sick, or when we're having struggle in our relationship. We do not go to God and seek communion with him when, when we are in trouble, but he's saying, I pray that Christ would be a permanent resident in your heart, where you would experience his love in every area. He needs to be treated like a year-round resident. We let him into our crisis, we let him into our sickness, we let him into our sad and lonely days, but we keep certain areas of our life marked off from his, his love. The inner man, the inner being in all of us battles with sin all day long. The spirit battles with the flesh. The spirit desires Christ to reign in our hearts. The flesh desires sin to reign in our hearts. And the Bible says that they're in battle with one another all the time. It's one thing to believe in the truths of the gospel and another thing to have those truths work out in your life in everything you do. And the only way to do that is to dwell deeply on Christ in our innermost being to treat him like a permanent resident. And when Paul was confronted with this inner man, when he took a deep look into that inner, that inner man inside of him, he was humbled and broken. He tells us about this story. Maybe you know the passage. Maybe you've referenced it in your own life concerning your own struggles where Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I have the desire to do what is right. You ever said that before? but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want to do, and the very things I want to do, I don't do. And Paul says, what is wrong with me? Who will save me from this body of sin, he says. Paul uses the same word in this passage where he says, the, he says, the word of God dwells in my inner being. He says, I, have, I, I believe these things. I know the word of God because he was groomed from day one. He, he knew the word of God perfectly. He memorized it. He says, I know it, but it hasn't translated into a changed life. Why do I keep on doing this? Paul's desperate plea is this, who will save me? Who will save me, this wretched man that I am? And then he answers his own question. He says, praise be to Christ, my Lord. Paul had the courage to confront the inner man. He had the courage to go beyond just his outward experience and his outward uh, reality, and he had a courage to look at what was going on in his heart. And what he saw was, was the reality of a man who struggled with sin and desired to please God, but felt that there was no hope on his own. And so he cried out to his only hope, the blessing that he had, and that was Christ. He recognized that his outer man was brilliant. He knew and followed God's law better than most. And yet he saw this untamable monster inside of him, his sin nature. What do you see inside of yourself? When you look, look deep inside, when you have conflict, when you have issues, when you look inside, what do you see? Is it pretty? 
you probably don't look very long, my guess is. And if anyone ever tries to look inside of there, you close that door real quick. Most of us don't like looking inside, and when others do, we shut them up quickly. Are you in the habit of confronting the inner being? Just think about how you react when people point out your inner faults. Are you defensive? Are you ashamed? Are you embarrassed? Do you pretend? Do you perform? We don't want anyone to look at our inner being, so we we pretend and perform. We hide the real us from everyone because those are the parts of our lives we're really ashamed about. Paul sees this, and he has the courage, and he looks inside to that deep place, and he says, wretched man I am. He says, I'm a mess. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then immediately he says, right after this passage in Romans 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. The only way out. The only way out is we look into that inner being and we see all that mess. We see the cause of our sin. We see where temptation just kind of festers and boils over into a life that is dishonoring to God. The only way out is a power that stands outside of this mess. The power is something beyond us. It's an alien righteousness offering us Jesus' perfect life. That's the only thing that can save us. Salvation, as Paul's been saying for the first three chapters, is it's a gift from God. Salvation is an act of God's sheer love and mercy. So a person can grow emotionally healthy without Jesus. We know this because there are many emotionally healthy non-Christians. Right? You have non-Christian friends who probably cope with, with difficult things in our life better than you do. And so you might feel the conclusion as, well, then maybe you don't need Jesus. Maybe, maybe I'm the one on the wrong path. Maybe it's not, Jesus obviously isn't fixing me and they're healthy. We can have connected time with Jesus. We can be committed deeply to religious activity with Jesus without having him in our heart. Right? We know this because there's people in the church that do great activity that are not in Christians. We know this we know this for a fact through personal experience where people are in the church for a long time and then they, just, they, they eventually just disown God and say, I don't believe anymore. We know this because there's a lot of people who profess to be Christian, yet their hearts have never been transformed. When we give time for connected communion with Jesus, we become rooted and grounded in his love as we think deeply on all that he has done for us. Paul says, rooted and grounded. You want to look in, you want to see that man so that you could be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. These are great terms. Think about this, rooted and grounded. These are like gardening terms. What Paul is meaning to tell us is this, the love of God is the soil in which Christians live. The the love of God is the soil in which Christians grow and thrive and are strengthened and encouraged. The love of God, we become rooted and grounded in all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And that is where we grow. By remembering that, reorienting our heart and minds around all that he has done, this outward love that has been expressed to us, we apply it to all of our struggles, and then we cultivate habits in our life as, a, as an overflow of an inner life that's been strengthened by his love. You want to grow? You need to dwell deeply on how much Jesus has loved you. 
You don't merely give yourself to spiritual activity. You don't simply try harder. You and, us, you and, you and I must grow in the dimensions of Jesus' love. The dimensions of his love. Normally we think of three dimensions. Height, depth, width. Paul adds a fourth. <laughs> Breadth. It's hard to say. Breadth. Paul adds a fourth. Maybe he's trying to tell us something. That we ought to give ourselves to a, to a deeply contemplative life on the love of God. We ought to give ourselves to a deeply contemplative life of the vastness of all that Jesus has done for us. Applying that to every area of our lives. There truly is nowhere we can go in any dimension, in any thought, in any circumstance. There is nothing that can happen to us that we can experience that would put us out of the reach of God's love. I think that's what Paul is saying. Paul is wanting to expand our understanding of God's love. And he's saying, You're, you don't understand. You don't understand it fully, and so I'm going to pray that you actually understand it more fully. I came across an old card that I bought my son about a year ago. Maybe it was a, it was a birthday card or Valentine's Day or just because. I can't remember. And on the front was a picture of T-Rex. And, and the T-Rex has his arms stretched out as far as he can. And on the front it says, I love you this much. Right? And T-Rex, he's got his little arms, right? <laughs> and then you open it up and, and then there's just this uh, kind of a quote bubble out of his mouth and it just says, I know it doesn't look like much, but it's a lot more than it looks. What's, what's going on there? He's saying, this is as far as I can go. This is all I can reach. And so I love you this much. But he's recognizing I'm limited in my ability to express how I, how I really feel. Paul is saying, we love God and understand God's love for us only in the ability that we can. When you think about how much does Jesus love you, you automatically think about, well, how, well, let me compare it to how people have loved me. How did my earthly father love me? Well, if God's love like that, loves me like that, well, then it's, it's probably not that great. It's superficial, or maybe, you know, he had failure, things like that. He wasn't always there, whatever. Maybe we look at how we love our children, and we say, okay, God's love is how I understand love, and I love my children, but sometimes I don't want to be around them. Maybe... God doesn't want to be around me sometimes. How big is God's love? Paul says, you have to relearn everything you've been taught about the love of God. The love of God has to surpass your understanding. You can only stretch this far, and you say, well, that's how much God's love is. And Paul's saying, no, it's much more than that. You just don't understand. So I'm going to pray that your mind and heart are actually strengthened to understand the depth of God's love, the depth and breadth and height and length that you can't even understand. Does that make sense? And only then, until you are strengthened in that and expand in your understanding of his love for you, will you truly find the rest that he desires to give to you. Until then, will you able, be able to really enjoy the blessing of his love for you? We never expect God to meet us deep, as deep as he desires to go. We expect him to help us in our behaviors. We expect him to give us strength over temptation to put on a good outer life. We never expect God to go deep as deep as he wants to go. And we say, when he does go there, when he touches there, we say, wow, like you're really, 
I didn't even know that that problem was there. I didn't even know my heart was that deep. I didn't know my inner man was that far inside. And that hurts. When God is pressing in that, you know, we see in the Bible that the word of God is like a double-edged sword, that it, it pierces deep into the soul. It, it divides like bone from flesh. It goes deep and it's painful. And Jesus is saying, I want to be like a surgeon with a scalpel and I want to cut deep, but in order to heal you. And, and unless, you, unless you let me do that, that cancer is going to fester. That disease inside of you is going to kill you. When you're experiencing despair and self-pity and discouragement, what do you normally do? You know, normally we add a few activities. We read a few passages of Scripture. We ask for prayer from others. God wants to go so much deeper. Part of the sanctifying process of the Holy Spirit is strengthening us in the deepest parts of our life. It's as if Paul is saying, do you know the love of God for you? And we say, yes, I know that God loves me. I know that he loved me, that he sent his only son to die for me on the cross. And he says, that's awesome. If you truly knew that, you wouldn't worry about a thing. If you truly knew the depth and height and breadth and length of God's love for you, you wouldn't be paralyzed by the fear of the future. If you knew the love of God for you, you, would not, you, would, you wouldn't be motivated so much by people-pleasing. You, you would be filled with contentment all the time. If you truly understood the love of God, you say, Paul, what do you know? He says, I'm sitting in a cold and dark prison cell telling you how much joy I have. Paul knows it. He experienced it. He even tells us in, in his letter to the Philippian church, he says, I know the secret. I know the secret of life. I know the secret to being joyful in the worst of circumstances. And we say, what is it? And he says, to know Jesus. To know him and his love for me. You, you truly understand his love. Your life would change in every dimension. Being aware of and responding to the dimensions of God's love must be the first and foremost activity of our lives. The first and foremost activity of your life as a follower of Jesus is, is being aware of and learning and knowing the dimensions of his love and then responding to it in faith. And if you look at it like that, that's really the Christian life. And it's simple. It's quite simple. I don't mean easy. It is simple. And here's what it creates. This is the lasting outcome. And where Paul wraps it up, the final outcome, the lasting outcome that it creates is that we are filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with the fullness of God. It is amazing, if I could say this so comforting or, I don't know, unsarcastic in an unsarcastic way. It is amazing how committed, how many committed and smart and lifelong Christians have such miserable, joyless lives. And I say that with all due respect. Isn't it amazing how many Christians that have been Christians their whole lives are miserable people? The byproduct of slowing down and spending time with Jesus is a flood of contentment, it is a flood of contentment that comes as a result of anchoring our lives in the love of God. 
Paul says, I want all this to happen. I want you to go there. I want the love of Christ to go in your hearts. I want you to know that his love dwells in you. I want you to know there's nowhere you could go that is too far from the love of God. I want you to be changed. Why? So that you could be filled with the fullness of God. That you would know it in your inner being. That you would live it and enjoy it. And that it would spill over into every area of your life. And we think, well, that's fairy tale. Oh, not on this side of Eden, not on this side of heaven. We will not be able to experience. Well, of course, there is yet to be experienced. But Paul is saying, no, you can, the, the Spirit of God dwells in you now. You still live in a broken world. But greater is he who lives in you than he who lives in the world. Greater is the power that lives in your heart through faith, the love of God that is with you. Paul says it's possible not to experience full sanctification and glory in this broken earth, but to experience the fullness of God, it's not only possible, it's what he's called us to. It's what he wants for us and what he prays for. The gift of anchoring in Jesus' love is understanding a love that surpasses understanding. Isn't this, oh, Paul is so frustrating. <laughs> I want you to be filled with the fullness. I want you to understand what can't be understood. I want you to know what can't be known. I want you to search the unsearchable. Paul, like, what are you talking about? It's like, how do you search the unsearchable things of God? How do you understand the, under, the things that are not understandable? So there's this paradox. Paul is saying, like, what has been hidden from us is now made known. And what you don't know, he says, I want to give you eyes to see what can't be seen. Oh, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, he reveals it to us, right, to have a vision for the things that we can't see that we don't even know about. Paul says, this is what I pray for. Christianity is not about our faithful pursuit of God, but it's about God's relentless pursuit of us, even while we were sinners running from God. Many of us believe that, that intellectually, we believe it intellectually, that God loves us, that he saves us, that he pursues us and gives us his mercy, but we struggle to see, how does that apply to my everyday life? How does that change the way I love and parent? How does it change the way I work and how I rest? How does it change the way I speak? How does it change? How does it change the way I do the very next thing after I hear devastating news? Paul says, well, I'll pray that you'll be filled with the fullness of God and understand what can't be understood. Being filled with the fullness of God doesn't mean that we increase our lives with activity for God. Rather, it means we're looking at everything in our life through, lens, through a lens of, of, of what he has done for us in Jesus. And only then can we see clearly. Only then can we see what we need to see. You know, in my experience of over 15 years of full-time ministry, here's my assessment of the average Christian. Very few Christians spend quality, regular time with Jesus. And I don't mean like many Christians don't read their Bible. Studies show that, that many Christians do. About 60% of Christians read their Bible once a week. What I'm saying is very few spend regular, quality, contemplative time with Jesus for no reason other than to know Him, to enjoy Him, to be, to be encouraged by the relationship that they have with Christ. Almost everyone is busy, overscheduled, tense, fatigued, and starved for time. Our schedules allow for almost zero quality time and solitude with Jesus. Our Sunday worship is not meant to replace what can only happen in solitude with Jesus. Our life groups are not meant to replace what can only happen 
in solitude with Jesus. Your acts of service and when we do things to be a blessing, they're not meant to replace what can only happen with, with solitude with Jesus. And if you don't spend quality time with him alone and are involved in these three activities, my guess is you're probably frustrated and you feel like, what is the point of doing all of that activity? It doesn't change how I feel. Because it was never meant to accomplish those things that can only be accomplished in solitude with Jesus. An analogy for, for you and looking at all of life through the love of Christ is this. I, since I was eight years old, I've had corrective lenses. I wear contact lenses. I can't see beyond eight inches in front of my face. And I'm not wearing them now, and I don't know if anybody's here. So, oh, there you are. Okay, thank you. My enjoyment of my contact lenses is not determined by how much I talk about how much I love it. So to be filled with the fullness of God and, and, and a symptom of being filled with it, it doesn't, I don't just talk about it all the time. What it means to be filled with the fullness of God is rather to enjoy life as I look through life through the lenses. That is the, that is the symptom. That is the, that is the, uh, the, the fruit of the fullness of God and enjoying that is by, by looking at all of my life through these corrective lenses. Being anchored in Jesus' love will allow you to look at your life and everything that happens through what God has done for you in Jesus on the cross. Everything. Can you see your entire life through the lens of what Jesus has done for you on the cross? That is what Paul is praying for, that we would learn how to see all of life through what he's done for us his love for us in Christ. How does a person filled with the fullness of God deal with worry? We go to Jesus. We look at our concerns through the perspective of Jesus and his love for us. How does a person filled with the fullness of God deal with bitterness? We go to Jesus and we see his forgiveness and mercy to us. How does a person filled with the fullness of God deal with fear? We take our fears to Christ and we trust in his faithfulness to us. The love of Christ is our are our glasses. The love of Christ, when we look at our lives through the lens of his love, we're filled with understanding, with power, with peace. And that is something available to everyone in this room. It's available to everyone in this room. First, we have to know Jesus. We have to believe what he has done for us. We have to repent of our sins and we have to trust in him. We have to acknowledge our need for him. We have to cry out like Paul and say, who will save me from this wretched reality? of a man filled with sin. Who's going to save me? We have to cry out like that, and then we have to say, it's you, Jesus. I'm leaving my life of sin. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to put my hope on you. And then we give him full access to our hearts. We say, okay, it's not just accepting you to, to be Lord of my life. It is, it is giving my life to you. It's giving my heart to you. You are now your Lord of my emotions, my feelings, my dreams, my hopes. Have it all. How does your current pace of life enhance or diminish your ability to pursue deep connection with Jesus? Are there things in your life that are hindering you where you just say, I just can't do that? There are things in your life that are hindering you, that, are, that you're creating obstacles in your life that are there internally or externally that are in the way of God having his full reign in your heart. What are things that are in your life that are diminishing your ability to do that? What are things in your life that are enhancing your ability to do that? What habits have you put in place to guard yourself so that you can get time with Jesus and deep connection with him? Think about his love. Think about what he has done. Think about his faithfulness to you and your inner being 
will be full. Let's pray.